Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome along again to The Northern Agenda, your weekly look at the big issues that matter for the towns, cities and villages that make up the north of England and the people whose decisions are impacting our lives. I'm Rob Parsons, a political journalist based in Leeds. I write a daily newsletter called The Northern Agenda, which looks at the ups and downs of politics and public affairs in our region. Even though it's summer, there's been plenty happening. There were calls to rerun the mayoral election in Middlesbrough after criminal charges were dropped against the ousted former mayor Andy Preston. And at the time of recording, there's still no sign of Merseyside-born former Culture Secretary Nadine Dorries, the absentee MP for Mid-Bedfordshire. With the cost of living crisis showing some signs of easing as inflation dips to a mere 6.8%, We've got a very timely guest on today's podcast in the form of Louis Taylor, the CEO of the government-owned bank, the British Business Bank, dedicated to making finance markets work better for smaller businesses. Brought up in Newcastle, he's been telling me about how his organisation is trying to tackle regional inequalities in places like the North East. So keep listening to hear that interview in just a few minutes. But first, shall we take a look at the big stories in the news with a friend of the podcast, Ruth Hannon, the Manchester-based director of the People's Powerhouse, a movement dedicated to bringing Northerners together so they can decide what the future of the North should look like. Afternoon, Ruth. How are you? Hi, Rob. I'm fine, thank you. And I'm, I'm actually in Yorkshire for this recording. Oh, you're in Yorkshire? On, on, the, right, on the right side of the Pennines? Exactly. So that's, good to, that's, good to, that's good to know. Excellent stuff. Well, we're recording this on a Thursday afternoon and for tens of thousands of teenagers across our patch, the main thing on their minds is opening that envelope or clicking on that link containing their A-level results. It's the culmination of months of hard work and a potentially life-changing moment for many, particularly for this cohort of young people whose education has been so disrupted by COVID. But in terms of the politics of it, it's a chance to assess whether the education system is working the way it should and whether our young people are being pointed in the right direction after A-levels, both for themselves and for the future uh, of our country. Ruth, I remember getting my A-levels all too well. I remember the, the pitting of nerves in my stomach as I was walking from one end of my village where I grew up in Staffordshire to another, to the school, to, to get the results. Uh, does it Does it bring back good or bad memories for you when this this day rolls around each year? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I do remember getting, even though it's an incredibly long time ago now, um, my A-level results from Selby College. And um, I suppose what it always makes me think of was I didn't get the results that I needed. I went through clearing. Um, and I think sometimes we we forget to kind of remind people that you, they've still got options you know we, we seem to put so much emphasis on everybody getting a stars um rather than thinking about what do people actually need because you don't always need a stars to get 
the college course or the university course or whatever other thing you want to do. So I think sometimes we need to sort of relax that pressure a little bit on young people. And if they get what they need, that we should be celebrated. Um, but also I think, you know, and, and it's a bit hackneyed people my age saying they won't count in a few years. But I think it's really important to actually remind them that it isn't all over if if they don't get what they want. You know, look at all these people that change jobs in, in, in their 30s and 40s and 50s and change direction. And I think it's important to remember that everything doesn't hinge on this moment and sometimes to just have a period of reflection and think, what do you want to do? What do you, what, what could this be an opportunity to explore other things than necessarily the kind of very kind of hierarchical path of going to university? And I guess in an ideal world, people will be continuing to learn and progress throughout their 20s, 30s, and even, even God forbid, their 40s, uh, if, they, if they're going to, you know, become better people and contribute to society. So, yeah, it, it shouldn't be the case that everything hinges on, uh, on on what you get in your A-levels. And in fact, this, is prompt, this, this has been the sort of tenor of the debate today. Um, Gillian Keegan, who obviously education secretary who we've had on the podcast before who grew up in Merseyside she was telling Sky News this morning that people won't won't ask you anything about your A-level grades in 10 years time and she said they'll ask you about other things you've done since then what have you done in the workplace what did you do at university and then after a period of time they don't even ask you what you did at university it's all about what you do and what you can demonstrate in the skills you learn in the workplace. Gary Neville obviously former Man United footballer who uh, helped found the University Academy 92 in Greater Manchester, he agreed and said that people are going to look at the experience, the work experience you've had, but to get into the workplace in the first place, you may be judged upon what you've actually uh, achieved in these results. So it's uh, I, I guess it's a fine balance to strike, isn't it? Obviously, A-levels are important and we don't want to discredit the the hard work that people have done in in, in achieving good results. But it, it's I guess it's getting that message home that there are lots of other options for them should things not have gone quite right. Yeah. I, I think there's I think there's something really interesting to explore generally about what is education for. And I think often, you know, I remember myself choosing what GCSEs I was going to do. Um and then choosing what A-levels I was going to do based on what job I wanted. And I was making those decisions when I was 15 and 16 years old. And it's a huge amount of pressure to, to say, decide what you're going to do for the rest of your life when, you know, your life experience is quite limited. Um, and instead, I feel like there's something to explore about what do you enjoy? What are you good at? What would you like to explore? I think we've we've really moved in a direction of um, education is is about having the skills that employers want, and rather than trying to you know education is it, it, we are there to be educated, um, and that can be about lots and lots of different things um, to make us whole rounded people to have the skills to live whole lives and and I think the idea of contributing to society being the only way we can do it through paid work rather than 
broader experiences is 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 problematic and and i think there's also as well something about um you know we talk about a level results coming out but we don't ever talk about all the other qualifications that people can get that are coming out now and that i think is important as well is that we've still got this idea that the a levels are the important thing and if you're not doing a levels they're not as important and that's usually quite classist um and you know we talk about people doing qualifications that enable employers to fill the skills gap but we don't ever say that about people who are going to Eton nobody says oh yeah we don't want you studying Latin anymore because it's actually useless to us we only say it to working class people or you know people who are entering inverted commas the job market when we should be exploring what 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 makes you a rounder fuller person that allows you to contribute to society in a different way and actually you know, there's lots to think about in terms of why do we encourage people to go to university and study something theoretical? And I'm not saying that's not a good thing. I did media studies and I loved it so much. And when people come down on media studies, I am always its greatest defender um, because it it really gave me a, an amazing uh, education. But I think things like, you know, in this day and age, why do we look down on people who are doing trades? You know, it's in this age of economic insecurity for a lot of young people, you're actually encouraging people to university to follow a traditional route, i.e., you know, you go to university, you study, you come out of that with a qualification, and in theory that will get you a better paid job. When in fact, what you're doing is often not the case. You know, people I worked with in think tanks who are all have to go to London to get those jobs are probably more economically insecure than maybe their working class peers who went into trades. So I think we need to stop this kind of classist approach to education. We need to stop talking about what employers need because actually what employers need now is probably not going to be what a lot of these young people are doing in 10 years when we're dealing with a massive climate apocalypse and a world where poverty is normalised. So what do they need? It's probably not having good IT skills. Yeah, you're right that the 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 market is constantly changing and shifting, isn't it? And it's uh, yeah, trying to trying to cope with that. One one interesting thing that I sort of spotted in the uh, in the debate that's been happening this morning, there was in terms of the the figures for the proportion of A levels that got the top grades, which obviously, as you say, is only one part of the picture, but the general trend nationally was for the proportion of A-level grades getting the top grades to be down from last year, because obviously the grade boundaries have been shifted, that it was made a bit easier uh, last year, uh, and has made, been made a bit harder this year to go back to back to normal. But um, mo- everywhere in the country had more uh, young people getting top A-level grades than they were in 2019. The only exception to that was the North East and Yorkshire and the Humber, where the proportion of top A-level grades was lower this year than it was pre-pandemic, which is an interesting trend that people are trying to get to the bottom of. And I see a quote from Sir Peter Lample, the uh, chairman of the Sutton Trust, who who basically says that this trend is in line with regional prosperity and sort of drawing the link between uh, how affluent an area is and the likelihood that uh, kids will be getting the, the top grades. And I suppose 
that does make sense in a way, doesn't it? Because I suppose we, we do know that poorer parts of the country, many of which are in the north, have disproportionately had their education disrupted during the pandemic. So I suppose it wouldn't be that much of a surprise if that was reflected in the number of top A-level results. Yeah, I definitely would imagine that that contributes. And I'm, I'm sure if you go into other regions and do some drill downs into like where are their deprived areas and what what impact it's had on on those communities you know it, it you know you don't you aren't educated in a vacuum you, you know you are educated in in your home where you know if if, if you're from a, a more economically um, precarious family you'll feel that you'll be impacted by that not just the sort of mental and emotional toll but also the potential that you might have to be working to contribute to your family's um, income you know all of those things have an impact on young people and I think this you know sort of saying the results are down now compared to 2019 I cannot imagine what studying through a pandemic must have been like I cannot you know, I I feel sorry for myself that I was the first year when GCSEs came out and we were real guinea pigs for GCSEs and hugely resent that. Um, so I can't imagine what it must have been like trying to study for your A-levels, which are really hard. And the fact that they're all still blooming exams, which are real stinkers for testing people's abilities. Um, and you've had to do that coming out of a pandemic is really tough um and then and then you have all the normal life hardships piled on top of that it's not been an easy two or three years i wouldn't have thought for young people and if you're from a poorer part of the country and your family's struggling financially that's going to have a big impact on you as well within the summer uh what's known as a summer silly season there's not quite as much news about politics is sort of a uh, in, in abeyance a little bit until uh, next month when it all comes roaring back. But I think once we're in, once Parliament resumes and politics is back to normal, I think we're going to be on the long countdown, the long road to the next general election, which is likely, uh, most people say, to be sort of next autumn. Uh, it feels like the battle lines are already being drawn. I saw a piece with Rishi Sunak in The Times today where he was kind of setting out how his approach differs to Keir Starmer's in terms of policies that bring inflation down. And we know, we've seen a lot about the sort of culture wars that uh, that some Conservative MPs have been waging and stop the boats, all, all these potential dividing lines with Labour. Now, I know the People's Powerhouse, you've got an event coming up quite soon, haven't you, where you're trying to draw up a manifesto for the North uh, for, for the next election. So we know what the battle lines are likely to be what what do you think they should be what topic should we be talking about if we're talking about what things are going to benefit the north in the next in the next few months yeah i i, I always in, in a way i always think you know it becomes a bit of a grim time once we're in the march to an election because it it does become about those big headline arguments you know the culture wars one i think is a prime example where it's a bit um it's a distraction technique to take us away from the things that we should be really talking about and for me you know we're in the 21st century we're we're nearly a quarter of the way through the 21st century which is incredible to think about 
And I, I read that article um, with Sunak and there was no mention of the climate emergency, no mention of it at all. And for me, that has to be in there. That has to be front and centre. How are we going to help people survive the climate disaster that we know is coming? And how are we going to enable, you know, if we're talking about young people and what they need, that's what they need. They need to have a future. So for me, that's a really big one. And the North will be hugely impacted by um, climate crises because we have a, we have a larger proportion of people who are um, financially um, living in challenging situations and, and you know all the evidence shows the poorer you are the harder you hit so I think for me that's a massive one and then I think the other one is you know we're talking about bringing inflation down and the, the cost of living is getting a bit better but in real terms you know there's a big you know headline of wages are the highest they've ever been but in real terms they're not and the level of kind of economic insecurity but not just economic insecurity people living in poverty Every political party should be saying no person in the in, in the UK should live in poverty. I think how how are we not how are we letting that happen? It's shameful. In the north of England, we've got so many children who live in poverty, um, and so many families. That is if we want the north to thrive, we have to address that. We have to say, let's let's enable everybody to have a good life. Let's enable people to thrive in the north of England. We know that we've got, you know, some of the most deprived areas. And, you know, when we think about A-levels, think about all those young people who struggled because they hadn't eaten or they were worrying because their parents hadn't eaten. Um, For me, we shouldn't have anybody living in poverty. And if any party doesn't talk about that, they're not looking around what's happening to us, to the north in the 21st century yeah it's a, a damning stat isn't it that the northeast is the uh, only region in the country where child poverty rates are getting worse rather than better which is uh, I, I suspect not going to feature on too many conservative election uh, manifesto leaflets in the uh, in the in the run up to the election and um, let, let's close on something a little bit uh, a bit, bit cheerier um this weekend i'm i'm going to be glued to the tv on Sunday morning, uh, when uh, Lucy Bronze from Northumberland, uh, Alex Greenwood from Liverpool, and Rachel Daly from Harrogate go up against Spain in the Women's World Cup football final, trying to uh, win the most uh, hallowed trophy in in, in the sport. Um, it, it's been uh, a great few days for for you know women's women's sport. It's really it's been dominated the the front pages, which has been. Great to see. And I was I was reading some really nice quotes from uh, the former PE teacher of Ella Toon, who uh, grew up in in Wigan in Greater Manchester, who and she's talking about how she's such a role model for girls getting into sport. And she's come back to the school to try and encourage uh, girls to get into sport. I mean, could it be that this is a, a turning point in terms of girls participation in sport, which, as we know, is it's not as high as it could be. And we know all the benefits that come from people taking part in sport and physical activity. Could it, something like this, could it, could it be a turning point, do you think? I really hope so. Um, I, 
I think it has been known. I mean, obviously, the, the Euros was quite significant. Obviously, they won the Euros. Um, but you started, you know, you started to see that interest and that um, importance of women's football starting to grow. And I think not just women's football, but, you know, the fact that you've had the um, Women's Netball World Cup on TV. And, uh, you know, I played netball at school. And when I see netball being played like that, I just say, wow, we were really slow. <laughs> compared to that it's so fast um and it I, I i think i think it i think it does and i hope it does and i think it's it's kind of you know it, it's all it's all part of like what are what are girls and women supposed to do when you know we're not supposed to be sporty and you know we're not supposed to be um these things and that those things but i think it feels like things are different now and i think there's a growing passion for people to for young women and girls to want to play football I I remember at my school there wasn't a girls football team it was you played hockey in the winter you played netball um you couldn't play football and my sister um shout out to Sarah um very sporty um really good athlete whatever she turned down to and wanted to play football and wasn't allowed because there was only the boys team and for some reason, um, my sister was too fragile to play against the boys. Um, but I really hope that schools and education and wider communities start to see the value. I mean, we've had the first woman player playing in the hijab, which I think, you know, is a massive thing for young girls who are Muslim and wear the hijab to see that that is something they can still do. Um, so I really hope so. I really hope those spaces start to open up and um, people start to get those opportunities and see that it's important. Um, and and yeah, I think it's, I mean, it, it's always great. I think they're a great football team, um, the England women team. But just generally, I think just, you know, I always remember when women's football sort of was starting to gain sort of traction, there was still a lot of Oh, you know, well, they're just not as good. And you watch now, they are. Yeah, incredibly, uh, incredibly skillful, aren't they? Some of the um, and the, the one, one or two of the goals uh, in the Australia game was absolutely uh, spectacular. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been I've been to see um, Manchester United women play because I'm so close to the ground, um, and it's always great. And and I think you know the. Um, the you know the crowd that you get you know it's a lot of girls in those in that audience um in the crowd and and lots of women and so it is something that is starting to draw people to football in a way that I don't think they would have done before um so I'm hoping it does I'm hoping girls think this is something that I can do I'm allowed to do this I'm allowed to be sporty because I think that's the thing we we get the you know we're told endlessly you've got to be pretty and delicate and not run around and get dirty and stuff like that and and actually those messages are, are, are changing and I think that's really really important and I think I think that's one thing the women's team have been you know whenever you see them speak they're so um passionate and eloquent about why it's important for women and girls to play sport so yeah um I'm, I'm optimistic about it yeah, well, good luck to the Lionesses uh, this weekend. I'll be watching watching keenly. Ruth, Hannon, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Rob. Now, 
If you own a small business in the north of England and you're either starting up or trying to grow to the next level, the chances are you will be after some financial backing to make that happen. But for many firms, access to finance can be hard to come by. And that's where the British Business Bank and my guest today, Louis Taylor, comes in. The agency, founded in 2014 and with its headquarters in Sheffield, underpins debt and equity provision to small and medium-sized companies and aims to make the business finance market fairer, more efficient and more diverse. So far, it's supported more than £12.2 billion worth of finance to more than 96,000 companies. It's not always been smooth sailing and the past three years have been dominated by its administration of pandemic schemes and its management of the £47 billion bounce back loan scheme and the £1.1 billion future fund programme for technology startups with criticism over the amount of money lost to default and fraud. But it's also recently launched a new £200 million investment fund in the southwest and Louis, who grew up in the northeast, has set out his commitment to helping unlock the potential that exists in the north of England, address regional imbalances and make sure finance markets work better for entrepreneurs, no matter where they are in the country. So there's a lot to talk about and it's uh, great to welcome you to the podcast, Louis. Well, thanks so much indeed, Rob. Really good to be here. Why don't you just start with a bit of a bit about your upbringing. Uh, I, I gather you grew up in the northeast. Maybe you just give us a bit of a potted history of your of your, your life and career to date that's brought you to this this point. Great. Well, uh, press play on my favourite subject there. Um, but I was born and brought up in Newcastle. Uh, went to school there, left um, only when I was 19 uh, to university uh, in the south of England, in Cambridge. Uh, went from there into uh, initially investment banking, but then into a couple of industrial companies, buying businesses for them, and then back into banking for uh, a bank where, again, I was buying banks and finance businesses for their, their own book, as it were. Uh, it was an international bank, spent three years running the bank in Vietnam uh, and also Cambodia and Laos. Family lived out there for three years with, uh, with me. And then we came back and uh, I started first one government job about eight years ago at UK Export Finance, helping exporters to get the finance they need to export uh, with the intention from the government of helping to support British jobs by promoting exports, but also now working with the British Business Bank uh, in the last sort of 10 months, uh, focused on smaller businesses and making sure that they get the finance they need to grow with small business and entrepreneurs being incredibly important to the economy and to uh, yeah our prosperity. Can you tell us a bit more about the British Business Bank? What, sort of why it was created? Obviously, it's been going for nearly a decade now. So sort of what was the problem it was set up to solve and how successful has it been in your view in, in meeting that, that challenge? Yeah, uh, really good question. So it was set up 2014 under the coalition government, and it was set up really in order to make the markets and finance of small businesses more effective and more efficient. At the time, there was a real gap in money for startups. And I don't think we hear that same uh, kind of expression of a gap in the startup world, uh, not least because the bank has a startup loan scheme. It's called Startup Loans. We've just gone through a hundred over 100,000 uh, new startup loans in the last 10 years, over a billion pounds. And that's been an incredibly successful scheme. But there have been other elements of uh, access to finance a small business that the bank has also been there to help with. Firstly, a lot of small businesses said their big high street bank wasn't really interested in financing a small business. So we've been able to help 
a range of challenger banks and specialist finance banks and other non-bank lenders to be able to enter the market, get the funding they need to help smaller businesses, perhaps with a local emphasis or with a a particular sectoral emphasis uh, to get the finance they need. And I think that I went to um, a small business finance expo recently. There were 143 exhibitors at that expo. A lot of those financial institutions just didn't exist 10 years ago. So the diversity of finance for small business uh, has really, really broadened out. And then I think the other element is that we've raised the awareness of the benefit of investing in real growth companies. Not every company is going to be a unicorn, a billion dollar valued company, and it shouldn't be. We need community companies. We need a wide variety of businesses. But investing in those growth companies is really, really important. They generally have new technology. And for investors like pensioners uh, or pension would-be pensioners, uh, getting into those new technologies through those private markets, those unquoted companies at an early stage can really be the thing that helps you to, to get better returns. But also, generates jobs, retains those companies more in the UK, and helps to drive the future of the economy, uh, making it a future-based economy rather than um, you know, an economy based in the past. So I think the bank has been successful broadly, but there's plenty more to go. And I think that you know, there's a big move now. The, whilst we might, might have sort of addressed a lot of the startup loan uh, issues, uh, there's uh, a real issue with money going into growth companies. And I think you heard from the Mansion House speeches by the Lord Mayor of the City of London and by the Chancellor, an intention to try and get more UK institutional pension money, particularly investing in UK growth companies, um, because there's, uh, there's a lack of that money going into that area. How much of what you're doing has a regional Element. I know there's a the British Business Bank has recently launched a a Southwest investment fund, putting 200 million pounds of new funding into that region. Obviously, you're from the the north east of England originally, so presumably have a bit of knowledge about what that economy needs. So, are you aware of sort of regional imbalances when you're deciding on you know policy for the bank or uh, you know which which areas you need to prioritize? So we have a range of programs. A lot of those are national in nature, and so they're uh, open to companies uh, across the UK. But where we specifically recognise quite a big gap is in the uh, imbalance of provision of equity for small business, equity finance, where there is a huge skew towards the south southeast triangle, as they call it, between Oxford, Cambridge and London. Uh, where a disproportionate amount of equity goes. So the government caused us to set up three funds about five years ago, which are coming towards the end of their life, but they're going to be replaced by six funds. So the three funds were Cornwall's and Niles of Scilly, focused on that region, uh, a Midlands Engine Fund, but also a Northern Powerhouse Fund. Uh, If I talk a little bit about that Northern Powerhouse Fund, I mean, that was a £500 million fund now, originally a little bit less than that, but the success made the government uh, increase the size of it. By May, it had already invested over £400 million in almost 2,000 SMEs across the Northern Powerhouse region, um, but has also attracted in around £615 million of private sector money as well. So the impact of the fund, which has spent 400 million, is already a billion pounds. And that's quite a big impact to have. The good news is that we are launching at the moment, you talked about the Southwest Fund, another five funds, so one in each of the devolved administrations, Wales, Northern Ireland and Scotland, but also a second Midlands Engine Fund and 
a second northern powerhouse investment fund, which this time will include the northeast of England as well. And that northern powerhouse fund is uh, going to be £660 million. We're hoping that the impact of it through getting private sector money into the investments that that fund is making will be you know, well over a billion and a half if we if we can manage it. There'll be some uh, microfinance for companies up to from twenty five thousand to a hundred thousand pounds of debt. Then there'll be a proper debt fund from a hundred thousand to two million pounds per counterparty, and an equity fund which will invest up to five million pounds per counterparty in companies uh, across the Northern Powerhouse area. So that's uh, yeah, a lot of money uh, going into uh, in, into the north. Seemingly. I mean, what kind of are there particular kinds of companies that you think will benefit from this or will it have a, a sort of a, is, it, is it something that any any organization, any small or medium sized business can apply for? It's open to any kind of company. But I think the most important thing is for anybody seeking the money to be able to demonstrate the need for the money and the impact they anticipate it's going to have and that it's therefore a commercially viable undertaking. But it's open to companies of all sorts. It could be a company that needs equity growth money. Um, but uh, it could equally be a corner shop that wants to open a second branch, or it could be um, you know, a business that needs more working capital in order to grow, but its technology is, is already proven. So a range of businesses, and I think it's important that that money does go to a range of businesses. We're not looking to put all of the money into you know, middle of Manchester or the middle of Liverpool or the middle of Newcastle. Um, the money should go to, re, you know, genuinely regional businesses of all different sort of states of progress and managed by local fund managers. So the, the desire for the fund is not just to finance businesses, but it's also to demonstrate to the fund management industry that there is money to be made by being by running, running funds in, you know, in, in regions and by doing so, encouraging more investors into those regions as well. I wanted to ask you about um, the sort of track record of one of the big funds that you operate, the Future Fund, to support uh, tech startup firms. Now, I think there's some new figures that, that the British Business Bank have put out recently, which seem to suggest that there's a uh, London companies are getting more of the benefit uh, of this, and I'd be interested in why that might be. As I, I think, as of June the 30th, the Future Fund held an equity interest in. 591 companies in total, but only 17 of those were in the northeast and 295 in in London. Can you explain why that might might be? Is it is it because there are fewer companies that are applying for this, or what what's what might be the reason for such a sort of regional imbalance in that respect? So the Future Fund is a, is now a closed scheme. It was open for a finite period during the COVID pandemic. And it was the intention uh, when it was set up by the uh, the Chancellor, then Chancellor, now Prime Minister, that um, companies that were pre-revenue uh, would get be, still be able to get the financing they needed in order to get their company, their technology to a commercialisable point or to bring their product to market to the point where they could, um, could, could actually uh, start to generate revenue. So it's it's a closed scheme now. The way it worked was that there were convertible loans given uh, to companies, and if they raise some more money um, uh, at a later stage, then that loan converted to equity. And the five hundred ninety one you mentioned, those are companies who've raised more money, and that is why those stakes are converted into equity. Um, of course, there were some business failures in there. Uh, it's a venture capital portfolio, and you'd absolutely expect that. Uh, why was there a skewing of the number of companies to the to London, the southeast? 
I'm, well, it, time will tell in terms of the companies that actually end up converting their loan into actual equity and going forward, because some of these companies have gone uh, out of business as well, as, again, as you'd expect from a venture capital portfolio. I don't think there was any skewing of the criteria uh, towards uh, the, the London companies versus the Northeast companies versus companies from anywhere else. This was an open scheme. Uh, and the, the, the companies that applied... Um, you know, came from where they came from, really. Uh, I would say that um, this scheme, effectively an uncurated venture capital portfolio, is performing incredibly well, given that it was an uncurated venture capital portfolio. And the fact we've got 591 companies so far that have raised more money from investors and have therefore been able to convert this loan into an equity stake for the future, that is uh, very, very encouraging. I'm not going to make a forecast about it, but it is certainly not a trivial possibility that we will get all of our money back out of this portfolio for the government, even accounting for those that went went under as well. I guess the point is, is there a risk that it will exacerbate uh, sort of regional imbalances if the majority of this money ends up going to the part of the country which already has the, the biggest economy and the area that has the least is getting is getting the least is that is that a concern well rob i mean as i said this uh, scheme you're talking about is a historical scheme now the future schemes we've got including the northern powerhouse investment fund that i talked about the midlands engine investment fund southwest fund the three administ- uh, devolved administration funds all of those are going to put equity into parts of the uk outside of the southeast of england so you you grew up in in newcastle until until 19 and I imagine you have, you know, an interest in how that area and other similar northern cities and towns sort of thrive in the in the future. What needs to happen for places like Newcastle and you know the small businesses and medium sized businesses that operate there to to succeed? And it is in, in your view, and is that is that happening enough at the moment? Look, I think that. Um... It's the case in the UK that we we can talk ourselves down a lot. Uh, so I would say that uh, you know business performance in the northeast is better than it's made out, although it could be so much better. And that's actually the case for a lot of the UK. What we have in the northeast are some really great universities that are putting out really great research, a lot of which is commercializable. Then we've also got a lot of companies that have been focused historically on offshore oil and gas, but with an engineering capability that is very adaptable to renewable energy sources as well. So I think that, you know, if we can bring enough capital to bear around um, these opportunities, bring in some entrepreneurs who are uh, experienced in accelerating the growth of a, com- of a company from a, a, a product to a commercialized product, uh, the combination of those three things, the actual underlying idea the capital and the capability, all of that is really key to uh, increasing the the number of iterations and the pace of iterations of, of how you get a virtuous circle uh, in the economy. And look, I'm very optimistic that, um, in the words of Morecambe and Wise, we have all the right notes, but not necessarily in the right order. We've just got to organise ourselves a bit better because, as I say, I think we're better than we make out we are, but we could be a lot better than we actually are. Well, that's a positive note to end on. Louis Taylor, thank you so much.